1: Hello, Military Moms. Welcome to Military Mom Talk Radio. This is Robin Boyd, solo today, as Sandra Beck continues her vacation and time with family. I'm sure many of you are finding time to get away and enjoy the summer. I hope you are. And while you're relaxing by the lake or wherever, I hope you've loaded the iPod with great podcasts from Toganet and gone to the library or the bookstore and stocked up on some great summer reading. Sandra and I have had some wonderful guests recently here on Military Mom Talk Radio, so we thought we'd feature some highlights of recent authors just so you can add these wonderful books to your summer reading. Back in February, we were visited by Pat Brisson, a highly acclaimed author who shared her most recent children's book with us, Sometimes We Were Brave. Check it out at pat com, and that's P A T B R I S S O N.com. Let's listen.
2: Pat, one of the things that I did want to talk a little bit about, uh, and uh, in getting ready for all of your books, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of literature and literacy. I think children need stories in their lives so many reasons, and not only their literacy proficiency, but to expand their horizons and their interests and their dreams. How does reading to children empower them?
3: Oh, I think it's the most important thing you can do for your child. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- it's very important to have books in the home. Studies have shown that the more books that are in the home, the better kids will do in school. Reading to children uh, opens up to them different vocabulary, different vocabulary than we would use in our everyday talking, conversation. Um, different words. I mean, my granddaughter knew the word, she was like 19 months old. She knows the word zebra and penguin. Well, she doesn't run across a lot of them in California. Yeah. So yeah. it's only from books that she knows these words. And I, I just think that's very important. I think the more words you have, the more you can think, because I think. We think in words, and if we don't have the language, it's even difficult to um, to think more clearly. So I think reading is very important. I, all of our, the rest of the classes that you will take in school are based upon your ability to, to do reading, so Natural. I think it's very, very important.
2: I, re- I used to do reading groups with kids. I'd work... Um in the special ed department so i'd go into classes and i would pull out kids to do some reading groups Mm -hmm. and we would do some of what was on the curriculum but then we'd get onto these tangents and it was so wonderful and i'm sure some of the teachers would get impatient with me but i'm I would just be fascinated with where the story would take us because sure. we would begin talking about something and it would lead to something else and then their imaginations would go and then, of course, the time would be up and we'd have to say, well, we had got through half of it. But, we... <laughs> but somehow I just valued that opportunity to just reach in and, and, and hear what their
3: little minds were doing and it was wonderful. And I think that's important because they're making connections with the with the literature that they're being exposed to. It's not just something that exists outside themselves. It's something that connects with them. So I think what you did was just right. Well, I hope so.
2: I have a lot of kids that still stay in touch with me, so I guess I didn't do too badly. Um, I've got to share this from your website. I I went through uh, and enjoyed your website so much. And once again, it's uh, www.patbrisson.com. And in your bio was this. Lovely little um, little portion that I've got to share. And Sister Mary Hugh was, in fact, your second grade teacher, is that correct?
3: Yes. Well, Very one... important person to me.
2: <laughs> one day, Sister Mary Hugh was reading a story to Pat's class. It was about a storm. The rain poured down. Lightning streaked across the sky. Thunder boomed. Pat could see the storm in her mind. It seemed so real. When the story was over, it was time to go home. A boy in the class went to the cloakroom and brought Sister Mary Hugh's umbrella to her I I'm going to email over to you. What email are Sister you Sister Mary Hugh looked surprised. But Andrew, she said, I don't need my umbrella. The sun is shining. Everybody um, laughed. Everybody except Pat. If you can pronounce she was getting ready stuff, to bring Sister her boot. brain boots. That's how real the storm seemed to her. Pat never forgot that story and how it had power and magic. She never forgot her second grade teacher either because your story, Hot Fudge Hero, is dedicated to Sister Mary Hugh who taught Pat to read and show her the power of stories. I just thought that was wonderful.
3: Well, Sister Mary, he was very special, and I think that it, I think it does show the power of stories. Um, and I think that's that's a magical experience, and that's one of the things that kids learn on their parents' laps if they're lucky enough to have parents who read to them.
1: Oh, yeah, so important. Now, how did "Sometimes We Were Brave" come
2: to uh, into your heart and into your pen?
3: Well, I uh, as a As a children's author, I do visiting author presentations in schools, and I was invited down to uh, Guantanamo Bay and also to Panama. I talked to kids from Department of Defense dependent schools, and... That was the first time. I, I'm not from a military family, so that was the first time I was in very close contact with military families, and I was really struck by what a tight um subculture that was. And I was kind of interested in in what it would be like. But there was also, I overheard another author talking to a little kid, and she said, "And where are you from?" And this little child said, "I'm from Germany." And and I thought, oh, my gosh, here's a kid who's never lived in the United States, an American kid yeah. who's never lived in the United States. And I got to thinking about what sacrifices these children are making. Um, so for a few years after that, I would, I would think um, about military kids and would just sort of hold them in my heart in a different way than I had before I got to know them in that way. Yeah. <clears throat> and. Um, I don't know. I got to I got to thinking about it one time and, and thinking about how they're I mean we have a mil, we have a volunteer of uh, military service, but these kids haven't volunteered. Their parents have volunteered, but they are they are making a tremendous sacrifice um, that they are just thrust has been thrust upon them. They have not volunteered to do that and they are giving up months or even years at a time with their sure. parents at a very important time in their lives, and I realized that that was a tremendous sacrifice that these kids were making, and I didn't see very many books. You know, as a librarian, I was exposed to a lot of children's books, and I did not see very many um, books about military families or military kids out there, Mm -hmm. and so um, I wrote this story, but it was not an easy sell. I sent it to one editor who said... And when I said, you know, I don't see many books about military kids, and she said, well, maybe there's a reason for that. And I thought, huh? What? Like, <laughs> well, yeah. What's the reason? Well, but her, her feeling was, well, if nobody else has done it, then I don't know that I want to be the first one to do it. Oh, my. Um, Because maybe they're not successful for a reason. Well, I, I just, I'm coming at it from a teacher and a librarian's perspective, and I feel like all children deserve to see their lives reflected in their literature. And, And if a kid will never have a parent in in the armed forces, I think that they will grow and learn from being exposed to a book like this because they will um, be able to empathize better and they'll be able to see this child's life um, from from the perspective that they can gain from from reading a book. Because I think when you read a book or have a book read to you and shared at that kind of close, intimate uh, level, you you can empathize more. You can put Absolutely. yourself in the place of that character, and I I hope that kids will say, "Wow, I I didn't think about that." Yeah, her mom's gone for for months at a time, or, wow, that means he doesn't get to see his dad for a long time. Right, right.
2: And we should say the story is about Jerome, correct? Is Jerome a real person
3: in your your life? Well, um, when kids ask me if the story is true, I like to say it's a true story, but it didn't really happen. So, no, Jerome is not a real person in my life. Uh But when people read my books, I hope that they will say, oh, this is so real. Yeah, life is yeah. just like this and i hope it resonates with their hearts and that they um that they feel that this is true this is truth on a different level not because it really happened but because it's the truth of a lot of people's experience
2: and uh jerome's mother in this story is is serving in the navy is that correct yes so yes. he he is separated from his mom and how does he know um how to become
3: brave how does the the story, help him be brave? Well, in the story, um, he has a dog, Duffy. And I use Duffy sort of as a, um, a mirror of Jerome's experience. So he talks about, well, when he has to say goodbye to his mom, he's, you know, he's crying and is upset, and, and um, Duffy is a little bit upset, too, because, of course, Jerome's upset, and he knows that they're going to uh, miss her a lot. And one of the things he does is he keeps her picture uh, next to his bed so that he doesn't forget what she looks like. Uh. And I've often thought about this. When, I, um, when I'm away from somebody that I love, I try to call call up and i'm not a very visual person i'm not artistic and i'm not good at memorizing faces and that's always one of my fear that i will forget what somebody looks like and i thought imagine if a kid has that you know has that fear that she's going to be gone so long what if i forget what she looks like and so he keeps a picture of his mom next to his bed so he doesn't forget what she looks like and he shows it to duffy so that she won't forget either and um he talks about how and he's at home with his with his dad Mm -hmm. and so sometimes when i talk to kids in schools i say you know how jerome's kind of lucky because he doesn't have to change schools he doesn't have to change where he lives That sometimes kids have both parents in the military and they're both going to be deployed and they have to go live with grandparents or an aunt and uncle or friends or whatever so not only are they away from their parents but they're away from the home that they're used to. They're away from the school that they're familiar with. So it's that kind of sacrifice that kids are being uh, made to ask. So through the story, um, there are different sections. Like one was sometimes we get surprises, and his dad gives him a set of markers. He decides to make a book for his mom while she's away, and Duffy gets a surprise, too. It's a rubber hot dog, and oh. he decides to hide it behind the couch.
1: Um, <laughs> do check out Pat's website. It's patbrisson.com. There's um, an interesting bio about her. She's such a a, a neat lady, and uh, I know that you'll enjoy reading more about her. Um, There's a place where you can check to see if she's going to be in your area. Um, She also does some writing workshops, both for students and for parents. So, um, do look into that. That's, if you've got the urge to write a little more than just what you're journaling, Um, maybe this is going to be your inspiration. She's got some very sensitive books in her uh, list of books. Sky Memories is a story about whose mother died of cancer, and um, then there are some real fun stories like Hot Fudge Hero and uh, Tap Dance Fever. Uh, and beach is too fun. Um, it's a, a story told in rhyming analogies. So there's a lot to uh, a lot to fill up your your reading book bag. And I hope that you take that right along with you wherever the summer takes you. So thanks, Pat, for a wonderful afternoon. We appreciated it and enjoyed meeting you. Recently, Sandra and I enjoyed meeting a remarkable woman a chaplain in the u s navy served in iraq a mechanical engineer another degree in economics and in between all that commander sherry snively has crafted a vivid personal account of the effects of the iraq war on soldiers and civilians in heaven in the midst of hell her book features poignant photos and glimpses of tender touching and emotional packed moments of military life you'll definitely want to share this book here's a portion of that show
2: Listeners, I have to describe this book to you first, okay? First of all, it's heavy. It's a heavy, beautifully printed, beautifully bound hardcover book, and it's got these wonderful, big, glossy photographs. But I have to warn you, some of the photographs are, they're not gory, but they're definitely alarming at times, and they really put to... They really put your heart to the test when you look at it. But this is a beautiful gift book, and you know. And I want to say that we have not had any, any support or endorsement of this book. We're not paid to recommend it. It's just, it's so beautiful, and it would make just the most beautiful gift. And what I loved about it the most, uh, Commander Snively, when I first saw this, I thought, oh, a Quaker chaplain. You know, she's going to preach to me. It's going to be religious in nature, and it's. <laughs> It's not. It's, you know, It's you've got these amazing stories in here, um, and they span. Like, I couldn't even pick which one I wanted to talk to most. You know, you write about the cops, the teacher, and the Beanie Babies. And then, like, when I think of our combat cougars, you know, there's the one, I feel pretty. I mean, it just spans. It just spans the whole variety or the whole, I don't know, even how you put it. It's just there's so much going on over there, and you're on the front lines. And Now, first, where did you get all these photographs? Because some of these are really awesome.
4: Oh, well, thank you. Actually, I took them all myself with two little pocket cameras that I had with me. Really? Absolutely. I had um, two little cameras, and at the time um, they were only 5 and 6 meg and they were cameras that would fit in um in my cannies.
2: Cuz you know you you cover everything from you know kind of what I expected to see which are you know pictures of soldiers and you know pictures of people in front of equipment and you know some you know bloody uniforms um but then you have like a blown up tattoo you know of looks like the grim reaper. Yes. And then a Santa Claus holding a machine gun. Right. I mean, you have really captured, I think, so much of what we don't see in today's media because so, everything's so sanitized.
4: Yes. And one of the photos in the book I just uh, received word is actually going to be in a fairly large art show here in San Diego coming up in August. So. Um,
2: uh, which photograph is that?
4: It's a photograph near the end of the book. It's um, one of a menorah, it's a makeshift menorah made out of Coca Cola cans. Um, At the time, uh, the rabbi came through. It's on page um, 254. Um, The rabbi was coming through to do services during the holiday season, and nobody could find the menorah in the chapel area. And so he had to make do with what we had, so he set up a menorah made out of Coke cans. And what makes it so intriguing is the Coke cans are written in Arabic. So I took this photograph, this shot of, of the glowing candles, and these red Coke cans written in Arabic, it really is kind of a striking picture. It says so much sociologically. It says so much kind of spiritually. Um, It's just there's a depth about that photograph, and I guess um, some other people thought so too. So I was very excited to get that word.
2: Well, that is, I mean, it is, but there's,
4: you know, and, I, and I'm and I not going to, you
2: know, say that this picture is any better or worse than any of the other in the book. There's a lot of pictures that you look at and you just go like, oh, you know, and it goes right to your heart, and I, you know, and I get chills and I get all teary-eyed, you know, because Robin will attest I'm the crier on the show.
4: <laughs> um, <laughs> oh,
2: I have my share of tears, too, my dear. <laughs> well,
4: but I'll tell you, there, there are times when I still look at...
2: You know, I even hate to say coffee table book, because coffee table doesn't do it justice. Right. But I think anybody who has someone who served uh, or is serving, um, it's just such an amazing, it's just so beautiful. You know, you you have captured so many different things. And, you know, and I look at books all the time, because people send us books to review for the radio show, and it's very rare that I wax on and on about this, but there's, and it's you can't really sit down. It's not a cover-to-cover read. It's like you read the story, you look at the photo attached to the vignette or the story, and it's um, it just, I, I think you need to be for a moment. Right. Isn't that beautiful, though? Because why would you want to read something like this cover-to-cover? Because you really do want to absorb the moment, the, the, the content that you just, the, the scenario that was just there, and that deserves, Time in and of itself, without moving on for a bit. Right. Absolutely. Well, and the one thing too, uh, Commander Snively, I'd look at. You know, we we had like you know. Um, We have a lot of different charities that come on our radio show. And I remember Carolyn Blasek talking about the Beanie Babies that, you know, when she started putting the Beanie Babies in, I don't know, seven or eight years ago into the Operation Gratitude packages and, you know, the use of the Beanie Babies over there. And I would, you know, I would retell her story to different people and people kind of look at me skeptically like, yeah, Beanie Babies, really they're going to trade them
5: with the kids to get information. Yeah, right, they're going to really wear them in their pocket. And then I go through your photographs.
2: <laughs> and not only do you have, you know, the, the Beanie Babies on a bed in, you know, that photograph, Yes. but then you have actually three different photographs, and maybe I counted wrong, but three different photographs with soldiers with stuffed animals. You have an Eeyore and then one with another little thing sticking out of his pocket. Exactly. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because we do get a lot of donations from our radio show to Operation Gratitude, and we want to thank Beanie Babies for providing these. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the a story? A little bit about
4: pop- the, the story? Yeah. Um, the, one, the story that you're talking about was um, with some Iraqi uh, cops that had been blown up in a bus, and they were in our hospital receiving treatment, and then another young man who was a teacher who was also Iraqi. And that photograph shows um, a pile of Beanie Babies on the bed, and it was just one of those lighthearted moments. I mean, there were so few moments, really, where people um, were smiling that it it brought – a moment of i think peace and connection to everybody i know that sounds so cliche doesn't it but but i think it was really true and um as we sent this young man off who was a teacher he was only about 20 or 21 years old himself and um we sent him off literally with a bag of beanie babies for his students that he was teaching and my hope of course was and i told him through a translator um, that he would tell the story of the Americans being there and, and what we did for people, um, both friend and foe, and how we helped, tried to help um, heal, heal the people that came in wounded. And um, he, I think he was very touched. And he, he went away saying, Yes, um, yes, I will tell those stories to my children, meaning not he didn't have children of his own, but his, his school children
2: right his students but he probably when he does have children of his own and does get married and carries on the stories um and it's just to me so arresting in these photographs to see like you know what we take for granted here in the states like you know my kids are spoiled most of the kids are spoiled here you know they've got 50 beanie babies and you know my son's favorite is this little rat and you know to take this I just wonder if the manufacturer of of Beanie Babies would ever really realize what a role their little toys that they made to make a million dollars or $10 million would play in the part of our war. I mean, that's just such a cultural, strange phenomenon that you couldn't write.
4: Well, and what's funny, too, is you wonder where are these Beanie Babies today? You know, are they still some loved little critter sitting on somebody's bed? And we used to kind of laugh, too. Um, We would go out and to our supply boxes, and we used to laugh and say that apparently they must be multiplying in those boxes at night because we just had boxes and boxes and boxes of Beanie Babies. But they, we really did use them, especially when children came in the hospital wounded. I mean, they, they really did make a difference.
2: It's such a, I mean, that's such a beautiful thing, and it's such a, a testament to, to you never know what one little bit of kindness could do to make a difference in somebody's life.
4: Exactly. Sometimes it's just the little things. I mean, I I have in one of the other stories, too, and you talk about the little things like that, um, the little uh, lotions and shampoos and things that people would send over. You know, again, people might say, oh, well, what do you need that for? Or you can buy shampoo at the PX on the base or whatever. I was lucky. I was on a base that actually had a small store. But you know it, i think it 's the the reality is when you 're over there it 's not so much what 's being sent it 's just that somebody cared enough to send something it' to make me cry <laughs> it 's the making of the connection
2: well, and just you know the, the, the connection that you make with this book you know, not only through your photography, but it's it's beautifully written and it's you have a knack, uh, Sherry, if I can call you that. You have a knack, sure. Sherry, of just picking up either I don't know if it's the absurdity, if it's the, you know, juxtaposition of two really, really different things. Um, it just it it's just it's just amazing. I mean I, I can't tell you right. beyond the beautiful book, it really makes you think.
4: Right. Well, I I hope so. I think so. I think also, since this is a a radio program about moms, too, I think um, for me, I have two kids, and my kids were five and seven when I was over there. And also, it's been very interesting meeting a few of the moms of some of the guys that are actually in my book, some of the stories, and the connection afterwards. So in many respects, the journey continues. And some of the moms that I've met, um, some of the guys lived through it, and one of the moms that I've met, um, her son did not make it. So it's been a very interesting connection in that sense as well, very healing not only for them but for me because you guys were talking about crying, and there there are times when I look back at these pictures or maybe I reread a story when I'm doing a presentation And, yeah, it still impacts me. I mean, I kind of choke up at times.
1: Be sure to find Commander Snively's book at all your book outlets as well as her website, www.heaveninthemidstofhell.com. And that's the whole title of her book, .com. We've got a short break coming up. And when we return, a book from the heart that you won't want to put down. So get a refill on the iced tea and stay tuned. This is Military Mom Talk Radio. We'll be right back.
0: Are you a military mom looking for help in dealing with the system? Keeping the home fires burning? Well, that's what we're here for. It's Military Mom Talk Radio with Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. And we'll be right back after these.
6: Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle. And sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2 on Central on Togenet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, intro Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of changing the world one invention at a time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time. With author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at six, five central on Toginet.com. Hey,
0: Welcome back to Military Mom Talk Radio on Toginet.com covering topics to help on the home front with help from those who know how the system works and how to work the system. It's more fun than a sale at the BX. Now let's get back to it. It's Military Mom Taught Radio. Here again are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd.
1: Welcome back, everyone. This is Robin Boyd on behalf of the vacationing Sandra Beck, who I know at this very moment is by a lake with a stack of books lining up more great shows for us here on Military Mom Talk Radio. Be sure to check out our podcasts for the complete shows you're hearing today and all of our shows on Toganet.com, on MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com, and on iTunes. In the meantime, we're offering a review of authors we've had recently on the show and hope you'll make a point of adding these to your summer reading. In June, Sandra and I met three-time Emmy winner and New York Times best-selling author Rita Cosby, former Fox News Channel and MSNBC primetime show host, and currently a special correspondent for CBS's Inside Edition. Her recent book, *Quiet Hero*, is about Cosby's father, Richard Kosabutsky, a Polish resistance fighter during World War II, who was badly wounded captured by the Nazis, held in a POW camp, escaped and ultimately rescued by American military forces. Rita and her father were estranged for many years, but the tale of their reunion is a story that will grip you from cover to cover. Here's our conversation with Rita Cosby.
2: Hey, Military Moms, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Robin Boyd. And, Robin, I'm going to get right to it because we don't want to waste any time not having our guest today on the air. She is Rita Cosby, the author of Quiet Hero. We're bringing her on today because not only is her book fantastic, but this would make, for those of you looking for a really great Father's Day present, this is just such a great book. It's an easy read. It's interesting, it's insightful, it's entertaining, and um, Rita, I'm just so happy that you're here with us today.
5: Oh, I'm so thrilled to be with you, Sandra. This is terrific. And also, I just want to say to all your listeners, you know, thank you for everything that you are doing for the military. It's wonderful, and just your commitment to to all the branches that you've been doing for years, and uh, I'm delighted to be on the show with you. Oh, I'm, you know, your book, your book is so
2: amazing because the... Just can you run down for our listeners tell about the suitcase the that to me is just it's such an amazing story and I think you can tell it better than anybody
5: oh you know what I tell everybody keep Everything that you, you know, when someone passes away, and in this case, my mother passed away. And, you know, sort of fast forward, I guess, before all of this, because I had a bit of a a very disjointed relationship with my father. You know, I had to sort of think back, you know, when I was doing this book, when did I realize my dad was different? And I remember when my dad came back from a run, from a marathon, and he took his shirt off. And I saw all these scars all over his body. I was about eight years old at the time. And I remember asking my mother, you know, what happened to dad? Did he get in a fight? You know, know, just like a logical, like a curious child. And my mother said to me, Sandra, I'll never forget this. She said, Rita, your father went through tough times growing up. We don't talk about it. And it was clear the door was closed. You know, I wonder if I became an investigative journalist, you know, asking questions of everybody else on Fox News and elsewhere because I wasn't able to do it at home, you know.
2: Well, and that's pretty typical from the stories we hear of, you know, generations past. We, you know, we we cover that in a lot of our PTSD shows that our parents, you know, in that generation did not want to talk about what
5: happened. Yeah, it's very typical. And in my father's case, it was times like 5,000 because my dad was, went through so, I think, such an incredible traumatic period, all as a teenager. I mean, my father wasn't fighting, you know, a war thousands of miles away, and he wasn't, you know, in his formative year. He was at a very young age. He was 13 years old when World War II broke out, and he was in Poland and literally saw the beginning of World War II and became a resistance fighter at a very early age. And all the things that my dad went through, all the extreme trauma that he went through, all of it he went through before the age of 20. It and never
2: it, spoke about it. As never spoke today. about
5: it for 65 years until I found that suitcase. <laughs> You know, and fast forward you know suddenly my unfortunately, my mother passed away a few years ago, and I was hosting a show at Fox News at the time and I remember it was you know very you know when you're when you're a public figure, I guess like we are um, I very much you know it was a very much a public matter, it was very difficult, and my mother really raised my brother and me um, my father now your father had left. Father the family. Had left. Yes, your father left the family. Left the family very abruptly at Christmas, Um, and in fact, I remember you know I was a teenager getting my makeup on in the bathroom and hearing my parents talking. My dad was never really home, even when he physically was home. He always was sort of mentally away, and always very emotionally disconnected. And you talk about post-traumatic stress. You know, my father certainly had it, and certainly um, really you know changed. You know, went from Richard Kozubowski freedom fighter to American father in America, basically never talking about his past, never talking about Poland, as if it almost never happened.
2: Now, that was his Polish name, Richard Kozobuski.
5: Yeah, that was his Polish name, you know, and then he changed it to Richard Cosby. I tell everybody, thank goodness, because if it was, you know, Fox News Live with Rita Kozobowski, it would have been very difficult. <laughs> So I am thankful for that. That would have been – even the Polish people had a hard time pronouncing it and spelling it. Yeah, that's Um, a
3: mouthful. It's a mouthful.
5: Um, But my dad left the family very abruptly, and I remember hearing my parents arguing. Here I was a teenager, and I remember my dad saying, I'm leaving, and I thought he was just leaving work, maybe changing his jobs or something, and then he walked in the bathroom and basically told me he was leaving my mother and essentially left us extremely abruptly it was christmas and did and you
2: see him much after that or was he just gone
5: he was basically gone and i don't know if my parents i don't think my parents ever spoke again after that day and it was uh, very painful and very confusing because here i was a teenager and i had no idea what happened to my father. I, I knew he obviously went through something traumatic that shaped him emotionally and physically, you know, by seeing the scars on his body, but obviously very emotionally. But what always confused me for decades um, until that suitcase was what happened to this man that he could leave a family so abruptly and so unemotionally. And I basically had almost little to no communication with him for decades after that Christmas. And I think what the hardest thing was as a, you know, as a child, I remember seeing my mother was very upset. My mother was confused. I think she thought they had a good marriage. I thought we were pretty, you know, my brother and, and me were pretty good kids. Um, and But he very quickly was able to sort of seamlessly leave that family and move on and, and start a new life and didn't seem emotionally affected by it. And I think that's what was the hardest thing for me to understand until recently.
2: Because he just shut off.
5: He totally shut off and didn't seem phased by the whole thing. And here, you know, here I was like, "Wait, wait, where's my dad?" Even if though he was traveling a lot when I was growing up, and he was always again very sort of emotionally distant anyway. But but to not think of your father being your father anymore, basically, and not being home and not being a part of your life in any shape or form, and your mother suddenly not having a husband after 32 years. I mean, they were married a long time. Right in the support, and and did when he left, he just
2: left, and was there no communication? Did he, what did he go on and do
5: he actually he was a civil engineer and he did actually move his com- you know leave his company soon after or actually relocate i should say stayed with the same company but relocated and i think my father just i remember my father saying to me he was approaching 60 years old at that point and my father said to me life's too short not to be happy and i need to make some changes and i need to do it now and you'll understand later in life rita but when you're not happy you have to make some changes and I remember thinking, he said it so matter-of-factly, like I'm, you know, you know, getting gas in the car. Meanwhile, he was, you know, leaving a family.
2: Right, and changes it, include me.
5: Yes, exactly. And it just, we were all so stunned. And my mother was very shaken by the whole thing. My brother and I were very, you know, just, and we learned to have to sort of basically grow up without a father. And my father, you know, there were, you know, decades where maybe I didn't even speak to my dad. I mean, it was, and when we did talk, it was very disconnected. And when my mother suddenly became very ill with cancer, um, I remember I talked to my dad briefly, and he just did not
2: How did you persuade your father to break his silence, which we know men of that generation and a lot of people who have gone through these situations, they don't want to talk about it.
5: Yeah, they don't. And my father, as I told you, was exemplified because he literally took on a whole new identity. I mean, he left you know Europe behind, came over to America, learned the language, changed his name from Richard Kozubowski to Richard Cosby. Um, and in fact, you know, it's funny when I was at the you know at the dining room table. I remember at the dinner table with my family, you know, when I was young, my father would talk about World War II as if he was a spectator, you know, as if he watched it on television, never talking as if he was there.
3: That's wow. how
5: disconnected my father was, you know, and I think he just did it as a as a survival mechanism and so when I reached out to my dad, i'll tell you I was so nervous here I am you know i you know I, you know, I was on Fox News ten years, you know doing things now with with inside Edition I've interviewed you know a lot of who's who and interesting people. I was so nervous to make the call. To my scared,
2: so you're this famous television personality, <laughs> yes.
5: scared to call your dad. <laughs> and we had not talked in years. And I thought to myself, you know, what if he rejects me? You know, am I ready? Mm-hmm. You know, what if he's emotionally numb as he had been for so many years in the past? But then I said to myself, I'm an adult now, and I need to call him. I need to find out not just who he is, I need to find out who I am. And I hope that he's ready to share it because, you know, he's getting up in years. He's 85 years old now. And I tracked down my dad, and he was so happy to hear from me. And I think the reason I broke through with my dad, and I'm so happy that my story has a has a very happy ending um, because my dad and I are now incredibly close, and I think almost closer than most daughters and fathers in the world are truly because we went through such incredible hurdles together, um, that I think – I went with such a loving approach to my dad. When I called him, you know, I didn't come across and say, Hey, Dad, you know, why would you leave us high and dry at Christmas? And, you know, why were you not present in my life for 30 years? You know? yeah, those are never good icebreakers. Yeah, those, that's not a good icebreaker, right? <laughs> and what I did do was I said, Dad, I want to know what you went through. I think I'm ready. I'm an adult, and I'd like to talk, and I'd like to get to know who you are. And, and you've got to share the story, Dad. Just, I, you know, I was, I was not approaching him as a journalist at first and not even as an author at first. I was approaching him as a daughter wanting to get to know my dad and I think despite trying to be tough and grow without him and live without him I obviously really miss my dad you know and when I called him he was so happy to hear from me and then I went down and saw him he lives right outside Washington D.C. I live in New York and we went. I went down there and um, it started this incredible journey. And as anyone, now, let me ask you. Know, let me stop yep, right here. I'm yep, going to ask ahead. you. How did you feel when you first saw your dad? You hadn't
2: seen him in a long time. You've got this suitcase full of stuff that you want to talk about. What was going through your head when you first saw him?
5: Oh, all these questions. I mean, at first, you know, first I was curious to see him. I mean, I hadn't seen him in a long time. I mean, he obviously looked older to me. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad was, was has always been the beacon of health. Even at 85, he still looks very good. You know, he looks like 85 going on 60. And in Is fact, he
2: 85 on the cover of your book?
5: He's 83, almost 84. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he looks
2: great. Both he looks, do.
5: And, and the thing is, too, because my father stayed so physically active, he's so mentally active as well. I mean, my father's memory is incredible. And, again, even though he didn't talk about these things for 65 years, he remembered it. He almost remembered, like, okay, it was Tuesday. Day, you know, September 1944, you know, I mean, he could wow, remember. That finite detail. Incredible, and like almost time of day on certain things. And, by the way, as a journalist, I did track down a lot of things to, you know, coordinate what he was doing to, uh, you know, add on to what he was saying, and he it was right the every turn. single time he was right. <laughs> wow. It was incredible. In fact, one time I got a pair of some documents back from the Polish government because they were so excited when they heard my dad was ready to talk because my dad was one of the few who survived, I think, one of the biggest blows Blood baths in World War II. And so when they heard who my father was and they tracked down and found records in Poland, even though Poland basically burned to the ground, they had testimony from other guys in my father's unit, the other few who survived. And they said, Do you realize who your father is? He's a hero in Poland we need to find out. They've been so excited about this. And when they tracked down documents, they said, they gave me one document of an injury, and they said, oh, it happened on September um, 2nd, 1944. And my dad said, no, I think that was September 23rd or 4th, because I think it was a Tuesday, and, you know, he's going back. And sure enough, two weeks later, the Polish consulate comes back to me and said, hey, we made a mistake. It's September
2: 23rd. Isn't that amazing? What amazing attention to detail. And it just
5: shows that, you know, what goes through these, even though he hadn't talked about it, clearly he It was was repeating in his mind over and over again. And and the getting of the story, the breaking of the silence, and I feel like I am so blessed, you guys, that I was able to break through with my dad because my dad, it was pulling teeth. It wasn't like all of a sudden, hey, I'm ready to tell the story. It was bits and pieces, and then we'd spend more time, and then the next day we'd spend more hours. And I spent more time with my dad for about a six-month period than I did my entire life. And it was the most incredible journey. And then my dad and I went back to Poland together. We retraced his steps. When I returned that, especially, you know, what triggered it. I returned that armband. And when my dad saw those items, first we talked for a bit, and then I gave him the suitcase back, and then we started talking. And when I gave him the suitcase with the red and white armband, and he took it out, and he put it right on his arm right away, like as if he was fighting again. And he looked at him, he held it, and you could tell it was like it represented his, his comrades. And he said to me, he said, I wonder who survived. And I said, Dad, he had not been back in 65 years. He left Poland. When he left, Poland was in flames. And that was the last time. He literally, the last time he left, he was held at gunpoint, shoved on a rail car by the Nazis, didn't know where he was going to end up, thought it was maybe his last, you know, day on his life. And Warsaw was literally in rubble. Warsaw was 87% rubble by most estimates, so you can imagine what he, you know, he left hell. And he was how old at this point? At that point, he was uh, 18 years old, five years of fighting, and then he was taken to a POW camp for six months until he escaped. And so my father just was so traumatized and never wanted to go back to Poland. I think he was too scared to, You know confront the the ghosts of his past, if you will, and what about saw this, that band, family that was
2: there what about his is his family his family that was there?
5: He lost touch with all of them. he had stayed in touch very minimally after the war because what's interesting after all these things my father went through. My father could not go back to Poland because Poland became a communist country after World War II. Remember, the Russians took it over. And the Russians, not only the poor Poles. I mean, if you see a Polish resistance fighter who's alive to this day, shake their hand because they are true heroes. And these guys were fighting with sticks and Molotov cocktails against the most brutal war machines in the world. My father was fighting at one point in his unit. They had 150 men. Two of them had guns. Can you imagine? And you're fighting the Nazi war machine? And then also the Russians, they were hoping at one point was going to help them. The Russians did not, as we know from history. And then the Russians, of course, hated the Polish resistance fighters. So when Poland, after World War II, became a communist country, my father could not go back. Despite being, you know, everything he went through, fighting for his country, surviving everything he did, he could not go back to his country. So he had very minimal contact with his parents and any other relatives because he didn't want to tip off the communist minders who were listening in on phone calls. Oh, sure. Isn't that amazing? So when he would call, he had a very short phone call one time with his mother. I think that was hit since the war until she passed, sadly. And I remember him telling me that the phone call, he he had to act like it was a stranger calling. She knew oh. it was him, but he had to pretend like it was some, you know, just generic person calling because he didn't want to tick the minders off that it was a family of a resistance fighter.
2: Or they right, and the tortured. most loving loving thing he could do for his family was to walk away.
5: Isn't that, and you know what's interesting? I, when I was growing up, I'd always get letters from my dad, you know, just very minimal letters, and it would always say, yours, Richard. And I'm thinking, really? yours, Richard, what about love, dad? Yeah. Because everybody else would get love, Dad, and I would get yours, Richard. And it was because that was the way my dad used that was the way he dealt with family growing so was up. was
2: it the same for your brother and your yes. so it was just he was identified with the rich it was it too painful for him to identify as family?
5: I think so. And I think and I think just that was the way he knew, you know, to protect his family and that's what he grew up in. So that's what carried over when he became a father. And it's, it's it's interesting how and of course how was I to know I just remember getting these letters from yours Richard thinking who was you know yeah kind of weird that. Yeah. yeah you know what, you know what's amazing you guys my dad took me back and this is where I really think I broke through with my dad he took me back and I hope that this inspires everybody to 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 go, and I really pushed it with my father because he, he wanted to have resolution. You could tell. And so I said, Dad, let's go back to Poland together. And we literally held hands as he took his first step on polar soil, first time in 65 years. He was He was trembling like a child. He was so nervous going over there, but he said, I feel like I need to go back. I need to see who survived. I want to see what happened to my country. And so when we went back, my father took me to the scene, where he says he lost all emotion. It was in the middle of the Warsaw Uprising. My father was fighting, you know, people were dying all around him. 80% of his men, by the way, died in the uprising. You can imagine the odds my father was against. And so at one point in the uprising, his girlfriend and some other of his colleagues at the time as a teenager seized this German tank, and they were just so excited. You know, what a windfall. Here are these guys fighting with Molotov cocktails and sticks, and they grab a Nazi tank. You know, what a, what a coup. Yeah. And so they're parading on the tank, and my father heard about this, and his girlfriend said, I'm going to go over to the tank. And my dad said, no, oh, this seems a little fishy. You know, it's a little strange that we got the tank. And she said, no, oh, I'm going to go parade. We're going to drive around the town square, and we're going to show it off. And my dad walked away. He walked away a few blocks, and suddenly the ground shakes, and the tank exploded. And on top oh of the tank God. was my father's girlfriend and all of his comrades. And my father ran back and said it was just rivers of blood. And now when we went back there in Poland, it's the scene of where 500 people were killed. 800 were injured they did indeed take it to a busy town square and so many people were killed and now it's now there's a plaque there honoring those who died including my father's girlfriend and many of his comrades
1: read his book can be found at all major booksellers and more info can be found at quiethero.org well as we're closing out the hour i just want to Bring a couple of things to your attention, as I try to do every week. Um, this first one is a notice that I got on Bobby O'Brien's blog, and there is a, a um, outfit that is looking for spouses to serve as ambassadors. Um, I'm going to read this. It says, a volunteer position usually means there's no pay, but at YourMilitary.com, an ambassador gets free training on business software and an opportunity to become a leader within their military community in return. YourMilitary.com, Y-O-U-R, military is looking to enroll more than 240 military spouses who will answer questions from relocating families, contribute to an online blog, and attend local events. There's just a few requirements um, in order to qualify. You must be a military spouse. You must live in the community they are applying for. You must make a personal commitment to work at least 10 hours a week. And you must have a computer with Internet access. If this uh, sounds interesting to you, uh, check it out at yourmilitary.com. And I also want to say hello to a fellow Toganet host, Megan Roth. Um, she has a show on Thursday afternoons titled entitled Boot Campaign. It's a true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. It's inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell. The lone survivor, the Boot Girls get out to rally support of their troops, or the troops I should say, by creating a photo gallery of celebrities posing in combat boots. And you've got to check out the website, and I believe the good governor of Texas is one of them. You'll, you'll check that out, I'm sure. The Boot Girls want every American to get your boots on by purchasing the Give Back Combat Boot. The campaign's motto is simple, when they come back, we give back. The Boot Girls want every person to tangibly give back to our troops by buying a pair of combat boots and proudly wearing or displaying them. The money raised from boot sales will go to the campaign's partner charities to support our returning active duty and combat veterans. So we want to just say hello to Megan and uh, remind you to check out her show on Thursdays here, right here on Toganet and we're hoping that we can connect with Megan very soon and have her on an upcoming show we've got a super show for you next week so I hope you'll be back here next Monday with Sandra Beck and myself Robin Boyd. Just drop us a note we'd love to hear from you wherever in the world you are. See you next week right here on Military Mom Talk Radio. Have a great week everyone
0: Thank you for being part of Military Mom Talk Radio on toginet.com with Robin Boyd and Sandra Beck, the owner of Motherhood Incorporated. Military Mom Talk Radio is here each week to provide a powerful platform for women to discuss their ideas, issues, and concerns with respect to the military lifestyle. For more information on the show or Sandra and Robin, go to militarymomtalkradio.com. This is their mission, helping military moms. So join us again next Monday for Military Mom Talk Radio with Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd, Monday afternoons, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on TogiNet.